Stanford University. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is uh, Abbas Miloni. Uh, I direct the Iranian Studies Program here at Stanford University. Uh, let me first of all welcome you uh, to what uh, will be uh, the one before the last event of this quarter. We have one more event planned for next uh, March 16th. Uh, and Hushangi Shahabi, many of you know him, a very eminent scholar uh, from Boston University, will be talking about the uh, cultural ties that connect Iran and Iraq and whether those are uh, sturdier than the political rifts. He's been writing about this. He has uh, an article coming up, and this will be based on that article. Next quarter, we have a number of events coming up uh, that uh, I pr promise will be fascinating, and they are uh, from a wide range of uh, disciplines. Uh, we have a couple of surprise announcements. I won't be able to tell you about them yet uh, for reasons uh, that must be clear to you. Uh, if you put your name on that list, uh, once we sh are sure we can uh, make the announcement, once we are sure that the guests will be arriving on time, uh, we will let you know. But the ones we know will be hopefully here uh, is uh, Rudy Mathi, uh, who has a new book about the pursuit of pleasure amongst Persians over the centuries. He will be talking. Uh, Abbas Tawfiq, one of the editors of the famous Tawfiq uh, satire magazine, uh, will be talking. It will be one of the I think a few times he has talked about the history of that uh, paper, uh, easily the most important paper of satire in the post-constitutional period of Iran. Uh, we have a scholar from France visiting Agnes uh, Devektar. Uh, she's written a book on the Iran-Iraq war and uh, how it is represented in films. <coughs> We have a special event uh, coming on April 10th. Uh, it will be at the Kabul Auditorium. It is an evening with Mohsen and Amju. Uh, it is an attempt by our program to prolong uh, Mohsen and Amju's uh, stay here. He's been a visiting fellow uh, for six months. We're trying to prolong this to at least another year. Uh, and this evening will be part of that effort. Uh, tickets for it will go on sale from tomorrow because it is coverly. Uh, uh, and those of you who know Mr. Namju will know that his tickets tend to go uh, out quickly. Last time they were sold out so quickly, in fact, that we had to organize a second program. We might have to do this for this one. It would be very wonderful if we do. Uh, so you can buy those tickets from uh, tomorrow. Uh, <clears throat> it is on uh, April 10th at 7 o'clock uh, in the Kaberli Auditorium. And uh, as for tonight, uh, it is uh, far, I think, from hyperbole or the Persian Tarov to say that Roger Cohen needs absolutely no introduction and that 
he is back at Stanford uh, by popular demand. He was here, and many people wrote to me saying that they missed the event, they really wish they had not, and we begged, borrowed, and stole, and he agreed to come back. Uh, when he was last here, uh, his brilliant columns in the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune were playing an important role in quieting those who had beat the drum uh, beats of war against the Iranian regime to push back its nuclear program. The anti-war program then, as now, is peopled by those who sometimes overtly and other times covertly are apologists for the regime. They use the rightful argument about the insanity of an attack on Iran, not to defend the Iranian people, but to keep the clerical despotism in power. But then, as now, those against the war also include people like Roger Cohen, who stood not with the despots, but with the Iranian Democrats, with the people who argued against the war not to preserve the regime, but because they knew that such an attack is indeed an answer to the regime's beleaguered prayers. He has remained steadfast in his journalistic duty to speak truth to power and to forego the personally comfortable to stand with the morally just. In standing with the truth and with the Iranian people's quest to become a more democratic member of the international community, he has sustained and ignored all manner of slander, pressure, an attack. The remarkable thing about Roger is that he's not only on the right side of history, but on the right side of facts. His prognosis and his recommendations have well stood the test of time and have sometimes an eerie tendency to become policy. What he wrote, for example, a couple of weeks ago about the need to lift some sanctions on software and computer technology in order to help the Iranian Democrats is now official American policy. Even if we disagree with him, we learn from his insights that come from a long, sterling career in journalism and his relentless quest for the truth. I would, of course, be tarroughing if I also don't say that his willingness to return to Stanford has also something to do with what is produced not here on the farm, but in the valley across the bay in Napa. So it is with absolute uh, honor and privilege that I give you Roger. Uh, thank you very much, Abbas. That was excessively generous. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for coming. Um, Abbas has become a good friend uh, over the past year as um, Iran has possessed us all. Um, I was looking back, actually, at my remarks here last year uh, before the storm broke, and I think we have in the United States a better picture of Iran now. Uh, Neda Aga Sultan has in some degree uh, supplanted in the American psyche the bearded mullah with a finger twitching on some putative nuclear button that inhabited that American psyche for so long. 
In fact, Abbas was telling me as we drove over here that he'd been stopped for inching across a stop sign on the Stanford campus with uh, earphones uh, from his phone in his ear. And when he was asked what he did, he said he was the director of uh, Iranian studies here. And, and the, the woman said to him, well, in that case, I'm not going to give you a ticket out of sympathy for your country. Now, I don't think... <laughs> I hope you don't mind me repeating that. <laughs> I don't think that would have happened a year ago. Uh, Iran in its complexity uh, has come to life. Um, this is a good thing, uh, but the riddle remains, as does the Iranian-American impasse. And of course, we've had the unconscionable violence, the rape, the repression, uh, this terrible uh, violence that we've seen uh, inflicted on the country. Iran is a labyrinth uh, from which we are all trying to find the exit and sometimes the way out of that labyrinth seems right at hand, it's right there and it slips away again. I was actually gazing at these formulas and wondering if maybe one of them <laughs> was the key to Iran's future and that was why it had been put there behind me but uh, I'll leave that uh, to your imaginations. Uh, well, I confess that I got ambushed. Um, Iran was not really in my plans. Um, and we journalists are supposed to be hardened people who are kind of serial voyeurs. We move on from one story to the next, from one thing to the next. But every now and again, uh, we get undone and a story uh, seizes hold of us and we're unable to let it go. And that's about where I am with Persia. So please find some indulgence for my affliction. Uh, this obsession is at once intellectual and emotional. Uh, Iran does crush people with its tragedy. As I've written, it's the original Heartbreak Hotel. And uh, I'm delighted uh, that uh, former Prime Minister Mali Bazagan's daughter is here tonight because I was told in Tehran of his pain at the end of his life, uh, unable to bear the very weight of his country's prevails and of a phrase he had uttered at that time. All of you know, this is Bazagan, that I am a man of democracy, consultation, toleration of other viewpoints, thus avoiding radicalism and haste, looking for prudence and gradualism. Now perhaps every revolution turns on its sons and daughters as it turned on Bazagan, and uh, the disappointments have been particularly cruel in Iran. I don't think the notion of an Islamic republic is an oxymoron. Perhaps some of you do. Um, I don't. But it has been an exacting and contradictory label. The authority of a supreme leader imagined as the prophet's representative, Ayatollah Khomeini's central revolutionary idea, has proved hard to square, impossible to square, with the voice of the people. And Iran's centennial quest for representative government, evident ever since the constitutional revolution of 1906, the first democratic uprising in Asia, endures. And unlike Afghanistan, Iran is, in my view, a nation ready through its education levels, through its civic engagement, through this centennial quest. It's a nation ready, uh, unlike Afghanistan, for example, for the demands of pluralism and democratic governance. 
So there's a lot of frustration in Iran uh, among a young population, um, 65% of them under 35. And it's that frustration that's found expression since the tragic electoral putsch of June 12. In the explosion of the still unbowed green movement, a people power quest for representative government that is absolutely without parallel in the Middle East today. And an acceptable balance between two irrepressible features of Iran, its deep sheer faith, often finding conservative expression, and the urge for modernism, for pluralism, has not been achieved. You can call these currents Eastern and Western, but in the end, they're Persian, and as such, sui generis. Well, when I visited Iran in early 2009, which was my second visit, I'd been there in the 70s, but that was just driving across Iran as a hippie on my way to Afghanistan. Uh, and I won't go into that visit. <laughs> um, I tried to give voice to the various facets of this ancient land. Um, the fact is any monolithic view of Iran is wrong, and I think it's still wrong, including Washington's most recent formulation of a, quote, military dictatorship. Although there's been a lurching, I still don't think Iran is there. I describe the Islamic Republic as a society, quote, whose ultimate bond is fear, where disappearance into some unmarked room is always possible. I said the Islamic Republic was, quote, an unfree society with a keen, intermittently brutal apparatus of repression. At the same time, I argued that it fell short of totalitarianism, and I attacked the caricature of Iran as some Nazi-like embodiment of Well... I didn't expect everyone to agree with me, of course, but nor did I expect this. Quote, Roger Cohen is a Jewish apologist for an anti-Semitic regime, and he should be reminded often that he has debased himself. Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. Cohen strikes me as one of those highly assimilated British Jews, as he came here and converted to being an American, who are made more than a bit nervous by Jews who have real Jewish commitments. Marty Peretz in The New Republic. Gary Rosenblatt in the Jewish Week put it this way, Cohen has become our, quote, media enemy number one. So thank you, Abbas, for inviting me back. <laughs> I thank you for having open minds. Debate's important. There was too little of it in the run-up to the Iraq war. And when it comes to Iran and Israel, debate is often the first victim of zealotry. Many people have a lot invested in the view of Iran articulated this year by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, a messianic, apocalyptical cult. I don't agree, despite the terrible brutality, the show trials, the arrests, the human rights abuses, the rape and repression in the aftermath of June 12. And I'll try to explain why today as I examine those events. A tremendous, a historic opportunity was lost on June 12. Uh, I arrived there two days before, and the atmosphere in Tehran was absolutely electric. And it wasn't just the sudden unfurling of the green movement in the streets of Tehran. It was the entire functioning of democracy in Iran. You had Ahmadinejad uh, supporters out there, you had Musavi supporters, you had Karubi supporters, and everyone was respecting each other. The debate was as virulent, as forceful, as interesting, as 
as varied as you might find in a European country or in the United States. There were furious charges and countercharges going back, open letters uh, from Rafsanjani, accusations of corruption, uh, Mousavi accusing Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad not quite daring to mention Zara Ranavad, his wife. It was absolutely fascinating, and uh, it was a model, I would say, display of democratic debate. And the day before the election, June 11, the quiet day, I walked around Tehran and every single poster had come down in respect of the rules. Nobody spoke out that day. As I said earlier, Iran is a country ready for the exercise of some form of democracy. It's not going to be U.S. Jeffersonian democracy, but it's ready for some form of pluralism. Well, on the night of June 12 to June 13, um, something happened. And in 30 years as a journalist, I have never seen such a total and utter dark transformation of what be, had been an absolutely uplifting and electric scene uh, anywhere. It was as if somebody had suddenly come out and said, okay, that's all over. That was just some puppeteer playing with all of you, and now all that is gone. It was just a show. It was just a show for your amusement, and now it's finished. And I was down at the Interior Ministry at 9.30 on the morning of the 13th of June. And cops, robocops in their black gear on motorbikes, they would become very familiar over the ensuing two weeks. They were pouring out of the Interior Ministry, and in phalanxes, they were going down the alleys of Tehran, particularly outside the headquarters of Musavi, which at 9.40 that morning had been overturned. I went in there. There were piles of paper burning. Desks were overturned. The whole place basically had gone up in smoke. And the police had mega Phones and they were saying, you, you over there, you in the blue shirt, you in the hat, move, move. And if you didn't move, if you loitered for a minute, uh, they would come at you uh, with truncheons and beat you. And a sight that would become very familiar over the next two weeks was already evident that morning, as you saw the police and the Basiji, the plainclothes militia, with the license of the state, uh, beating women. There is nothing more repugnant than seeing thugs beating women uh, with the license of the state. And I ask you, if indeed President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad won 63% of the vote, if indeed he had such a crushing victory, why was it necessary? Why was it necessary to confirm it uh, through this putsch on the morning of the 13th? Why were there no celebrations? You should be happy if you've won by that margin. You should go out and celebrate. Uh, no. Uh, the Interior Ministry was shut down. Uh, I ran into a man who'd worked there for 30 years who said he couldn't get in. He said the numbers had been plucked out of thin air. You all know how the Ahmadinejad numbers just went straight up like that across regions of vast social and ethnic uh, disparity. 
there are people who say, you know, that the press was misled, that we were taken in by the North Tehrani bourgeoisie, uh, that indeed, you know, Ahmadinejad having gotten 4.5 million votes in the first round in 2005, uh, in fact got 25 million votes uh, in the first round this time. And sometimes, you know, you have to breathe the truth. You have to smell it. You have to feel it. It's in your fingertips. Um, the, the Germans speak of Fingerspitzgefühl, you know, what you feel in your fingertips. And I can tell you, anybody who was there that morning of June 13 knew that something was rotten. Something was rotten in the state of Iran. And let's remember, it is not in answer to arguments made by people like the, the Leverets. It is not, it is not up to the people uh, in a democratic election to prove that there has been fraud. It is up to the state, to the nation, to demonstrate that the election has been fair. And by that standard, by that standard, uh, Iran uh, failed miserably. And the title of Islamic Republic, in which millions of Iranians had believed that that word republic does mean something, that okay, there were limits, but you could have a Hatami, you could have an Ahmadinejad, every four years you could nudge this country in some more hopeful direction. Uh, that belief uh, was shattered. And I think that millions of young Iranians who had been, and not so young Iranians, who had been in a position of, let us say, uh, reluctant acquiescence uh, to the Islamic Republic, moved uh, into outright opposition, and now form part uh, of the Green Movement. Well, uh, let me talk a little bit about those two weeks I spent there, because by the end of it I was virtually alone in Iran. Um, from day one, all the press Having invited 500 journalists, the Islamic Republic then turned around on June 13 and said, sorry, you can't go out in the street, all your press passes are revoked, you have to leave. Mayor Khalibaf had thrown a huge party uh, two days before. All this makes me think that this was not long planned. This was a moment of panic from the Islamic Republic. The green wave came very late and very strong. And as you all know, fears of velvet revolution are absolutely rampant uh, among the Revolutionary Guards, the Basiji, and other organs of the state, to the point that just about every U.S. institution, from this one to the Woodrow Wilson School, to virtually anything linked to Iran, is now uh, designated uh, by delusional Iranian authorities to somehow be part of the plotting of a Velvet Revolution. Well, the Iranian people uh, reacted en masse. Um, they didn't initially, I think, rise up to overthrow the Islamic Republic. They rose up because they thought their votes had been stolen. It was very simple. I mean, you just felt that on the streets of Tehran. It was, it was evident. And it wasn't the North Tehrani bourgeoisie. It was shopkeepers and students. It was old and young. It was people who'd been on the streets in 1979 and people who were only born uh, in 1990. It was every manner of person that I ran into. And on Monday, June 15, um, we all went down to the vast wide avenue between Enkelab, revolution, and Azadi, freedom, between revolution and freedom. And we, speaking for myself, and I think for everyone, we all went down there 
with fear in our hearts. And we emerged um, onto this avenue. And it was the most extraordinary thing. I will never forget it. Um, it was, my God, this is happening. It is happening. And you look back uh, toward Enkelab, and you look forward toward Azadi. And I got up on this overpass at one point that was vibrating from the number of people on it. And you could not see the beginning of it. You could not see the end of it. The crowd's been estimated at two to three million people by Khalibov, who is not, who's a moderate conservative, is not a Musavi supporter as such. I don't know how many people were there, but I can tell you that when you are in a crowd of that size, fear simply evaporates. Um, and I can also tell you that I have never in my last rather long career uh, witnessed anything of such power and dignity uh, as that great mass of Iranian people rising up to claim their votes. Uh, we walked in silence. Every time um, somebody raised a voice, you would hear sukut, sukut, sukut. And people just walked in silence. They raised their hands like this. There were women uh, trying to persuade the police to put down their guns and join the crowd. They reminded me of the women placing flowers in the muzzles of the guns in 1979. And Ahmadinejad had made this raving speech the previous day in which he dismissed all, all the opposition as hooligans and dust. And uh, a student next to me turned to me and said, we are dust, but we will blind him. And another woman whom I asked her name, um, she said very simply, um, with this fierce dignity, um, my name is Iran. And I believe that Iran was on a razor's edge. Um, I will always believe that. Um, I think in the first week uh, after June 12, the, um, the Islamic Republic did not have a handle on the situation. And uh, Musavi was there. Um, I saw him. Uh, but he didn't say much. Uh, this strange, ambiguous situation in, that he seems to inhabit was already evident, where he's not in prison, but he's not free. He hasn't abandoned the struggle, but he hasn't 100% embraced it, a kind of a awkward halfway house. And nobody, and the hypothetical in history perhaps has no value, but if that crowd had turned... I mean, Tiananmen, you can shoot 200 people, you can shoot 300 people. You can't shoot 2 million people, you can't shoot 3 million people. And if that crowd had turned that day on the presidential palace, I don't know what would have happened, I don't know how it would have been stopped. Um, but it was absolutely overwhelming in its dignity and its power. And this feeling um, persisted. Um, Iran, in those, I called it in one column, city of whispers. Uh, everything had been cut off. You couldn't communicate. Uh, as soon as you got near a demonstration, your cell phones were down. Everything was down. Uh, but you would just hear uh, 
tomorrow Valiasa, uh, tomorrow Vanek Square, tomorrow uh, Menkelab, uh, little notes were being passed. Uh, it was incredible. And um, on the Thursday, um, now six days after the election, um, it was a ferociously hot day. The, I remember the soles of my feet were burning through my shoes as we stood there. And we were in front of the telecommunications ministry, which was, of course, busy cutting off our cell phones. Um, and uh, there was a banner saying, we Iranians, do not lie to us. I really feel, you know, you can say many things about Iranians, but you really insult their intelligence at your peril. And that's what happened on June 12, the intelligence, and since, the intelligence of Iranians has been insulted. And um, a little kid came up to me and said, Amadi bye bye, which was something you <laughs> kept hearing. And at, the, and at that demonstration, um, uh, Musavi passed uh, with his wife in the back of a pickup. I don't know where you are. I, was, I mean, three, four yards from me. And the crowd went crazy, Mehusain, Mehusain, and the frenzy. And I wondered, you know, what will he say? What will he do? And he, he waved, kind of like the Pope, and, and went on his way. And, uh, you know, the, the Green Movement really needed then and needs today leadership. And Iran has been disappointed, of course, with Hatami. And, uh, and you know, it's hard for me to repress some disappointment in the leadership this movement um, has been getting. And maybe we can talk some more about that afterward. Um, so then Friday, a week after, um, Hamene's sermon. And, you know, I thought, what's he going to do? I thought he'll probably try and reach out, you know, to the divided Iranian people and try and bring them together. Instead of which, there was this absolutely ferocious speech. Um, you know, how British agents were behind everything and uh, British agents of all things. Uh, actually, I met the British ambassador there in February <laughs> and he said it was interesting serving in Iran because it was the only place he knew of left in the world where people still believed that Britain had some influence. <laughs> uh, but you know, a shudder really went through the city. Uh, he basically said, if anyone's on the streets tomorrow, there will be blood. And, and yet, that night, from the rooftops, um, the cries went up, Margba Hamenei, Margba Diktador. These, as you know, many of you, I mean, these are just unthinkable cries, even a month before the election. It's a measure of how far Iran has shifted. It's a measure of to what degree the velayat faqih which after all is the keystone of the arch of the Islamic Republic, has been loosened by the way uh, Hamenei behaved through these days, the way he put himself in the trenches with Ahmadinejad, the outrageous way he taunted the Iranian people by saying this had been an exemplary show of democracy and how dare these people go out in the streets and undermine it. Uh, that is one of the ways, I think, in which Iran has been lastingly changed. That office uh, has been weakened, and I find it hard to imagine today how a succession uh, would take place. Well, defying him, um, people came out the next day, and it was violent. It was very violent. Um, I... Uh, 
I was gassed very badly. Um, rifles were pointed at me. Uh, we were running through clouds of gas. Uh, every single, and you know, throughout Tehran, doors were just being thrown open. We would rush into a hallway and. I didn't know this, but cigarette smoke uh, alleviates the effect of, of tear gas, and people were blowing cigarette smoke into your face to try and dispel this. I saw kids with terrible uh, scars across their legs where they'd been beaten with these batons that give off an electric charge. You saw the crowds eddying back and forth, smoke, uh, great pools of smoke all over the place, and the rage uh, was just uh, palpable. Uh, the Vasiji were doing their worst, as were the Revolutionary Guards. Um, that morning, I received a note um, from somebody who managed to get an email through to me, and she said, I will participate in the demonstration. Maybe it will turn violent. Maybe I'll be one of the people who's going to be killed. I'm listening to all my favorite music. I even want to dance to a few songs. I always wanted to go to the salon and have very narrow eyebrows. Maybe I will go to the salon. I write these random sentences for the next generation so they know we were not just emotional and under peer pressure, so they know we did everything we could uh, for a better future for them. Well, I stayed about another five days after that. I went to Neda's funeral. Um, it was it was scary. Um, I you know pretty much everyone had left. I grew a beard. Uh, somebody did ask me directions in Farsi one, on my last day there. So uh, one night at about 11 p.m., there, I was staying in a little apart hotel. Which I mean, in the big hotels, it would, would have been much easier. You know, they could have found me if they wanted, no problem. But there was a knock on my door at 11 o'clock at night. Um, and I was basically, I hadn't slept because I was doing TV shows, Larry King and Charlie Rose, and, uh, and just the emotion of everything going on. I was just running on adrenaline, and, and there was this knock at my door at 11 o'clock at night, and I thought, well, okay, I guess this is it. And I'd made the calculation that as long as my, even if my press pass had been revoked, so long as my visa was valid, um, you know, the worst they would do would be to... Throw, take me to Atalahomini Airport and throw me on a plane. I, I, I don't know if that was the right calculation or not. Anyway, um, and uh, so heart thumping, I went and I uh, opened the door and there was a little nice Iranian guy with a smile holding two shirts and saying, sorry, sir, forgot laundry. Uh, <laughs> so, that was a relief. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, um, well, as you know, the, uh, you know, the tide gradually ebbed, but um, the, the shifts in Iran, I think, are, are profound. Um, uh, there's been a very considerable shift uh, in opinion. And I think a huge opportunity was lost, as I said. I, I think in, in Musavi, Iran had a man of impeccable revolutionary credentials, and he might have ushered Iran from this sterile kind of death in America bunker um, and maybe adapted the Islamic Republic into something where both words of that self-description actually mean something. Instead, what do we have? Uh, well, 31 years from the revolution, Iran is fissured. 
split and it's still mouthing the slogans of an anti-status quo power when I think it might best realize its ambitions by building bridges within and playing a constructive role without in the wider Middle East and forging a more balanced and equitable region. It's hard to look at Iran today for me and not feel the agonizing tug of possibility that's at once very close and somehow impossibly distant. If no longer on a razor's edge, Iran is unstable and it's more unpredictable uh, than before June 12. Uh, the divisions are not only in society where the young and the regime are just going in different directions, it's also within the authorities themselves. Um, people like Larijani, uh, Halibaf, Rafsanjani is always hard to read, but there are a lot of people who Ahmadinejad is the most divisive figure. I don't know if Abbas would agree, but I think he's the most divisive figure leader in the history of the revolution. And it's, it's possible to see a compromise. You know, it would probably involve sacrificing him. But you, you can see. I mean, Iranians, in my view, do not want massive bloodshed. They don't want upheaval. They don't want another revolution. They look west and they, what do they see? They see Iraq. They look east and what do they see? They see Afghanistan. They see blood and mayhem all around. They had it themselves in 1979. They've had the violence of the last nine months. They don't want that. I don't think the young generation wants that. But they do want compromise. They do want to be heard. And you could envisage a compromise. And this is part of the labyrinth uh, that we're talking about here. You know, how can we find um, some way out? Um, but uh, for now, Hamenei is there and the Revolutionary Guards behind him with their growing power. And this age-long quest for some balance in Iran between the mystical and the rational, faith and enlightenment, manifest destiny and muddling democracy, it goes on. If you think, in 1936, the Shah's father banned the veil, banned the veil, in a furious Ataturk-like push for westernization. In 1979, the clerical revolutionaries of the Islamic Republic, having toppled the Shah, reimposed the hijab on all women. And now, in 2009, we have a reformist movement trying to chart a middle course, a non-theocratic, but not necessarily secular path. And it's been bloodied before our eyes. It really does hurt to love Iran, doesn't it? And one of the people who loved Iran was Neda, Aga Sultan. Um, I think she's an emblematic figure in a country where more than half the four million college students are women. She wasn't especially political, but she wanted an Iran more in touch with the world, not shamed by the crazed outbursts of its president and the sight of European ambassadors walking out when Iran's president speaks. No revolutionary, Neda sought change without upheaval. No insurgent, she sought in peace to have her vote counted. No firebrand, having begun her life with rationing and seen things gradually improve. She wanted more freedom at the margins, the ability to travel, dress as she pleased, Twitter like other 20-somethings in her online world, and have a say in the government of the country. Didn't happen. Um, Let's talk a, a little bit about um, the history. Um, 
you know, political Islam, in, in to the extent that I studied it, arose as a religious backlash against secular modernity. And uh, Elizabeth Shackman Hurd has written very well about this and pointed out that um, it confronted what uh, the Iranian writer Jalal al-Hamad called Westoxification, the imposition of Western values and economic logic. Behind the movement, I think, lay an unease, even rage, of dislocated Muslim societies whose identity had bowed to American lackeys, in quotes, like the Shah in Iran. Decades have passed, but I still feel the West's initial dismay has hardly abated. It's reacted to Islam's political and ideological appeal with a large measure of incomprehension, imagining some secular victory one day over perceived forces of darkness. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen. The fact is the opposition in Iran has multiple agendas, and even the core issue of whether its, o its goal is overthrow or reform is unresolved. But in general, it's not secular, much as some in the West and Israel would wish it to be. Indeed, Mir Hussein Mousavi, the opposition leader, and the millions of young protesters behind him, provide an important glimpse, perhaps, of a third path between political Islam and secularism, one that might give re real meaning to the phrase Islamic Republic. After all, the cry that's been going up every night is Allahu Akbar. The revolution set out to achieve such a balance, but was usurped, and the temporal absolutism of the Shah gave way to theocratic absolutism. But its ideals, the ideals, are, the, are not dead. And Musabi has denounced both those, like Ahmadinejad, who view Islamic governance as some tyranny of the rightful, and those who view Islam as, quote, an obstacle for the realization of republicanism. Similar ideas have gained a foothold in Turkey in recent years, and it's in such hybrid notions that maybe some possible path out of the global secular religious Western Islamic divide lurk. I think, you know, that Iran's society is uh, a very far removed from zealotry. In many ways, Iran has been secularized, and that's what makes it interesting. While you've got these crazies out in Afghanistan, you know, imagining some caliphate, while you have the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, imagining some uh, Islamic society, uh, that's not the case in Iran. I mean, Iran's been through all that, been there, done that. Uh, and it's had to live with the give and take, uh, mainly take of late, um, of living in an Islamic Republic. And what we see today in Iran is really a country, I think, uh, at the limit uh, of its contradictions. Um, I don't know, you know, I really don't know how, how it's going to come out. I think we all, we all hope, we all hope for reasonableness. We can all envisage uh, some way out. Um, it's hard to be hopeful in the short term, given the extent of the repression. But it's also impossible, I think, to imagine this just going on and on and on uh, for another decade. Uh, I'm very worried um, that somebody might do something stupid. Um, and in my view, any kind of attack on Iran would just amount to sheer stupidity. Look, 
uh, Obama's, President Obama's outreach, it's not been perfectly calibrated. Uh, you could argue perhaps he could have done more. Certainly, I think he should have spoken out more forcefully early on uh, about the repression of the protesters, uh, peaceful protesters, protesting for their votes to be counted for democracy. He should have done that. But it was easy for Ahmadinejad and the Islamic Republic when there was the Bush White House. The, the radicalism of the White House was met with the radicalism of Iran, and Ahmadinejad was able to go around the world saying he was the anti-Bush. Well, that's gone. And I think part of this effervescence in Iran, part of what we've seen, has come uh, from uh, that outreach. And I definitely do not see supporting the Green Movement and still trying to get past this 30-year American-Iranian psychosis. I don't see those as antithetical. Some people do. They say, you've got to support the Green Movement, the outreach has failed, uh, you've just got to somehow funnel money to the Green Movement, make clear your support, and forget about any contact with these guys. It's tempting. It's tempting. But then I think you just go back to confrontation, and it'll be so easy for uh, the rulers in Iran to say, you see, the United States, just like in 1953, with Mossadegh, and ever since, you see what the United States is doing? It just wants to sabotage Iran. So I think, although it's not uplifting, I think we've got to be steady, you know, stay the course. I think uh, President Obama has to continue to try to look uh, for means to make contact uh, with Iran. Because look, what do the hardliners in Iran thrive on? What do they love most of all? They love isolation. They thrive on isolation. And uh, I personally uh, would argue that um, uh, this nuclear deal that would have gotten the low-enriched uranium out of the country, it looked hopeful for a moment on October 1. It seemed like there was a deal, and then it fell victim to the rival factions in Iran, to the opacity, and uh, the deal fell apart. But it's still being talked about. If, okay, maybe you can't get all the LAU out at once, uh, maybe, uh, you know, the destination is, is still to be determined. But if the IAEA has control over that low-enriched uranium, you remove the immediate possibility of it being used for further enrichment. And so you create time uh, for diplomacy, and I think that's so important. Look, what's, what would happen um, if there were an attack on Iran? Um, as Israel has seemed to want at, at different moments. Um, well, I think you only have to look back to 1980. Uh, what cemented the revolution in Iran? It was Saddam Hussein uh, attacking Iran. And at that point, all the different factions in the revolutionary movement, be they religious, of the left, liberal, they're united. Iranians are patriotic people. I mean, you're all patriots, right? And uh, they will, I believe, um, unite again. What will be left of President Obama's outreach to the Muslim world? Nothing. Who would distinguish in the event of an Israeli attack between Israel and the United States? Maybe three people uh, in the Islamic world. Um, United States attempts to make progress in Iraq and Afghanistan would be undermined. American security as a whole would be undermined. Hezbollah and Hamas would do their worst. The gulf between the Islamic world and the West uh, would be widened. Uh, the United States would find itself, in effect, at war from the western border of Iraq. 
across a 2,500 mile front uh, stretching all the way into western Pakistan and there would be President Obama trying to say well actually we don't have anything against Muslims we just happen to be uh, in a war situation in Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan well you know who's going to believe that Um, so I think it's terribly important uh, to go on because there are a lot of people who want this war Uh, there are people in this country who want it Um, there are people in Israel who want it and uh, some of the statements of President Ahmadinejad make it easier, much easier to build the kind of frenzy uh, that could lead to that but whatever the stupidity of those remarks and however outrageous they are If you actually look at Iran's acts since 1979, how often, for example, does this leader of the Islamic world, uh, as Iran describes itself, how often does it speak of the plight of the Chechens? Uh, Well, never. How often does it speak of the plight of the Muslim Uyghurs in China? Never. Why? Because, of course, the Islamic Republic makes the calculation that the price for saying death to America every Friday is that it has to have the support of Russia and China. Um, so there are countless illustrations, I think, of the way in which um, the mullahs can actually be quite prudent. And in the end, what is Hamenei? What is his title? This is what I go back to. He's the guardian of the revolution. The alpha, he's in the preservation business. Uh, the alpha and omega of his task is... Um, keeping this Islamic Republic uh, together and it remains unclear you know, 40 years into this program nuclear program, remember Pakistan went from zero to a bomb zero to a bomb in a decade 10 years, Iran has been messing around with this program for 40 years does Iran want nuclear ambiguity, which it has the genie's out the bottle, it's not going to unlearn the technology it has Uh, and I think we'd better get used to that but does it want nuclear ambiguity or does it want a bomb because if it builds a bomb it knows that it is taking a very serious risk and that risk is quite simply that much of Iran and the Islamic Republic will be reduced to an ashtray because the United States and Israel, if it sees that Iran is indeed about to produce an atomic bomb. Um, I don't know what would happen, but there are clearly serious, anybody sitting in Tehran has to know there is a very serious chance that uh, there would be an attack on the country. So my own view is that Iran is essentially in the nuclear ambiguity rather than the nuclear bomb business. And I can't prove that. And there are certainly people in Iran who want to build a bomb. Uh, but remember that U.S. intelligence, which we all know is fallible, is still of the view that that decision has not been made. So that leads me to argue that there is time. There is time. Let's not rush into anything. Let President Obama pursue this. Perhaps we can get a deal on the LEU. Perhaps some avenue can be open. I know it, it's depressing. I mean, as the president has said, I, I do think he's bent over backwards, despite the argument of the Leverets saying that he has, in fact, changed nothing. I think he's changed quite a lot. Could he have changed more? Yes, but he has made... Look at the no ruse message of a year ago today. Um, it was a very significant, I think, uh, change and, and outreach. And... 
I continue to believe, as I think Halibov believes, Larijani, Rasanjani, many people in Qom believe, that Iran has boxed itself into a bunker. We are seeing the very worst of it today. We are seeing the crazies, the paranoid. Most of the friends I have in Tehran are in jail. Sixty journalists are in jail. It is unconscionable uh, what is going on. Uh, people with the most paranoid convictions uh, are doing their worst. Uh, I was talking recently to Mazia Bahari, uh, who, as you know, the Newsweek reporter who was in prison for 60 days, <laughs> he told me, you know, they interrogated me, and of course at one point he said, uh, okay, well tell us, uh, these New York Times guys, they're all Zionists, right? And Mazia said, well, I don't know about that. I mean, for example, this guy Cohen, you know, uh, people in Israel, uh, they, they really, you know, they don't think uh, they're not satisfied at all with uh, what he's been writing. They're not happy with it at all. And he said, the guy just burst out laughing and said, ha, you expect me to believe that? And it just shows you, um, you know, the, the, the mindset uh, of these people. So there, there are th those people, but there are others who know. I mean, Iran could be Turkey on steroids. I mean, imagine a country like this with the energy resources it has, with the potential tourism it has, with the education levels it has, with the sophistication it has. Look at what it's managing to do with sanctions. Imagine what it could do without them. And there are people who realize that 31 years on, it's time. It's time to move on. It's time to stop these silly chants uh, every Friday that have all the resonance of new Muzak in an elevator. It's time to you know, bring this country into the world. That doesn't necessarily mean, uh, can perfectly well not mean, the end of the Islamic Republic. Look, in 1972, China and the United States, what did they agree on in the China communique? They agreed on absolutely nothing. But they did agree that it was better to have contact than not to have contact. And that their differences, which ranged across, it's quite interesting reading the Shanghai communique um, they, they, dis, they state that they disagree about everything but nevertheless they are going to talk to each other and look at what that piece of paper uh, has produced in the last 38 years uh, it has not produced democracy in China but it has produced a Chinese society that uh, has increased with difficulty and huge setbacks, but the China of today is a much better society for most Chinese than the China of then. And certainly for the world, uh, that breakthrough uh, was absolutely um, enormous. Um, well, um, I think I'm going to um, stop quite now. I conclude. Um, because I'd like to have a conversation uh, with you all. Um, I think President Obama must show firmness and inventiveness. Um, confrontation leads nowhere. Uh, as Vikram Seth, the um, very fine Indian author, once observed, you have to put your backbone where your wishbone is. You have to put your backbone where your wishbone is. And what do we wish for? We wish for this psychosis to be overcome between Iran and the United States. And we wish for better days in Iran. I really do bow my head to the youth of Iran and to the Iranian people overall. And uh, ever since I left Iran on June 24, 
uh, I've been feeling I've, I found it hard to get over what, what I experienced um, and for all the power of Twitter and the new extraordinary hybrid journalism that builds on images and impressions of citizen reporters with their cell phones the blogging the fusing of all these different images a void was left by Iran's banishment of the foreign press they banished us for a reason they didn't want me and others reporting from there because that's what we're trained to do and maybe we can bring something extra in the way of presenting a rounded picture and confronting the world and the Iranian government with the reality of the situation and I wrote on my return um, this I wrote journalism is a matter of gravity it's more fashionable to denigrate than praise the media these days in the 24-7 howl of partisan pontification and the scarcely less, less constant death knell din surrounding the press a basic truth gets lost that to be a journalist is to bear witness to be a journalist is to bear witness the rest is no more than ornamentation to bear witness means being there and that's not free so keep up your subscriptions to the New York Times <laughs> to bear witness being, means being there and that's not free no search engine gives you the smell of a crime the tremor in the air the eyes that smolder or the cadence of a scream no news aggregator tells of the ravaged city Tehran exhaling in the dusk nor summons the defiant cries that rise into the night no miracle of technology renders the lip-drying taste of fear no algorithm captures the hush of dignity nor evokes the adrenaline rush of courage coalescing nor traces the fresh raw line of a welt I have been thinking about the responsibility of bearing witness it can be singular still interconnection is not presence as you see I'm emotional when it comes to Iran forgive me for that perhaps it's not a bad thing good journalism requires the head and the heart I've always believed that and I refuse because I'm emotional to give up on the idea of better days between Iran and America even if right now the odds look very long and I refuse to give up on a better Iran one that respects all the threads of its rich culture its faith and its unquenchable desire for a pluralistic political modernity as Mahmoud Dawish, the great Palestinian poet who died last year wrote in his poem State of Siege quote me or him that's how war starts but it ends in an awkward silence me and him me or him that's how war starts but it ends in an awkward silence me and him it's time for American policy to re reflect better the him and the me of the Middle East Iran stands at the center of that quest it is also time for Ali Khamenei to embrace the me and the him of Iranian society the cost may be his turbulent president but compromise is still possible and not least it's time for the United States and Iran to acknowledge the me and the him of each other that's the only way past the awkward silence that has now lasted for 31 years thank you very much
be happy to take your questions. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mr. Coyne, how much do you believe Mr. Harmony truly has the power, but it's more really the the question is uh, to what degree do I believe that Hamanei is really in charge really in power um, that's a tough question and a good question and I don't think anybody beyond an inner coterie of maybe 25 people in Iran actually knows the answer to that uh, I think his power is still highly significant I don't think it's an absolute power. I don't think it's ever been an absolute power in the sense that he can do what he wishes. If it was ever absolute, it was only absolute in a negative sense, that he could veto something he didn't want to happen. Uh, I think he probably still has that veto power, but there's no question that the influence and power and wealth of the Revolutionary Guards and the Basiji has increased, and it's increased as a result of June 12 and post-June 12, when I think it was that group at the top of the Revolutionary Guards that said, no, this goes no further. Look, I think Ahmadinejad, it may have been a runoff. I don't know. I mean, all I do know is that he clearly didn't get 25 million votes. But at that point, it, these people were not ready to risk another week of the effervescence that we were seeing um, on the streets. Um, I think... There are you know, very significant divisions, and as I said, I don't know, I don't believe that Iran, if today, I mean, one of the things about Iran is nobody ever dies. I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the, you know, Musavi, Karubi, I mean, all these Hamanei, all these figures were around in 1979, and they're still around. Uh, but you know, if 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 he were to die. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't think. Um, I'm, I really don't think that Iran could come up with another supreme leader at this point. How how would that exercise be accomplished? I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think that's the best I, I can do. Um, he has still has very significant power, but his power is certainly not absolute, and it's been eroded by the loss of the spiritual authority and uh, the aura. He has no aura anymore. He has no aura to Iranians. And he's therefore a lesser and weakened figure. Yes, sir. I sincerely appreciate your remarks and the observation that you've explained to us. But my question is that uh, I believe that I agree that you know, the opposition is what we can do to convince Obama administration and union leaders to recognize him as a leader and support him and increase his immunity and many from the opposition as a leader of uh, Did everyone hear the question? Yeah. Um, I think what the United States can do uh, is, is quite limited. Uh, I think I think the president has been strong, stronger in saying of late that the right of Iranians to protest is 
is, is sacrosanct and must be respected and has shown clear sympathy for the Green Movement. But in terms of solidifying uh, Musavi as a leader and uh, reinforcing his position, I think what the United States can do is fairly limited because if it is openly seen to be funding, buttressing uh, this particular man or the movement, we all know what the reaction will be from Iran. It will be to say, you see, uh, this is America once again meddling in our affairs. And I think Musavi has to find it in himself to lead. Um, you know, why has he not he has not stood or fallen with that crowd of three million people. He's not done that. I mean, clearly, if he had been imprisoned, if he was in Evan, that would have had a galvanizing effect. Um, he's chosen to play this very nuanced game. Uh, and I'm, I'm not belittling it by saying game, but he has taken a very nuanced approach, which has been effective in some ways. The Green Movement is very much alive, I think. Um, I don't agree with people like the Leverets who argue that this movement has simply, well, basically never really existed, and if it did exist, it is disappearing. It's there, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence that it's not just in Tehran. Um, it's become harder for the Revolutionary Guards to show their faces in provincial towns. There's a sullen um, dissatisfaction and anger about what's gone on. Now, how that gets channeled into political organization, into effectiveness, I think that's, you know, that has to be found by Iranians. There's a huge change. I mean, look at the Iranian diaspora, which was pretty passive. I think the Iranian diaspora, I mean, us will know more about this than I do, but I feel that the Iranian diaspora is very involved today in what's going on in the country. And that, in itself, is a very big change. I just want yeah. to make a couple of comments. First of all, I think Obama appointing John Lindbergh has been a really good thing. Right. Because he really understands Iran, and he yeah. has uh, a pretty... Speak louder, right? Yeah. He has a... Uh, he's written a book called How to Negotiate yeah. Iran. I don't know if you've read it. I have it. I have it. Yeah. Uh, he brings me a lot of hope. Um, and then... The other thing is, I think the best way to support the, the opposition movement is, is for us to do a better job of educating mainstream America yeah. about Iran. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yes, sir. Thank you so much for your hopeful message. <laughs> the question I have is, if you were consulting an enlightened government on how to be constructive, outwardly, what would be your recommendation? An enlightened government... In Iran. About how to be... Yes. Yes, if you were consulting an enlightened government, right. what would you tell them how to be constructive? Well, <laughs> well I w how to, if, if the government in Tehran were enlightened, how would I suggest that it be constructive? Well... I mean, if you had an enlightened government, you wouldn't have hundreds of people, of course, being thrown into jail. Uh, you wouldn't have this paranoia about Velvet Revolution. You wouldn't see in any suggestion of change a threat uh, to the Islamic Republic, and you wouldn't 
regard the outreach of President Obama with such suspicion. I mean, I would, I would simply say, you know, it's time for Iran to join the world. It's time for Iran to have open trade uh, with the world. It's time for Iran to be part of a new map of the Middle East in which it can play a very constructive role in Iraq, in which it can play a constructive role in Afghanistan, in which it can play a constructive role, I think, in bringing a more balanced American approach uh, to the region. I mean, I think everything is skewed by the fact that there's this non-relationship between the United States uh, and Iran. If, if there were a normal relationship, you could imagine that the U.S. relationship with Gulf states would be somewhat different. And the U.S. relationship with Israel might be a little different. And you could see Iran playing a very constructive role in resolving the mother of all conflicts, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Iran has very significant leverage, of course, over uh, the Palestinian movement, parts of the Palestinian movement. And an enlightened government, I think, would use that leverage constructively to try and uh, bring us uh, to a deal. I think an enlightened government would realize that all that kind of nest of spies uh, the American devil, the great Satan, you know, time moves on. I mean, the Cold War is over. Um, the Iranian view of Russia changed. Um, the Iranian view of America can change. And an enlightened government would realize that 70 to 80 percent of Iranians like this country. They want um, improved ties with the United States. Um, so I guess those would be my, my main suggestions. I, um, you know, I feel we're just stuck in this blind alley, which makes no sense anymore. And it, it's, it's very hard to just find, find the way out. You know, sometimes I feel it's close. You know, suppose that Geneva deal of October 1 had stuck. Then they had arranged to have a second meeting. Well, at the second meeting, they could have started talking about some other things, you know, like Iraq, like the nuclear program, and then you could have had a third meeting. There are a lot of things that need to be put on the agenda, and you have, you know, it's like a patient who's repressed a trauma for 30 years, and then you go to the analyst, you know, well, the first sessions are going to be very difficult, you know, and, and the first meetings between Iran and the U.S. are going to be very difficult. But I... I you have to begin somewhere, and I think Obama's been trying to begin somewhere. And he's been frustrated. Um, he's been frustrated. Yes. Yeah. Uh. I think in the case of the president, there's certainly an element of bipolar disorder. Um, very strange veerings, you know, back and forth. Um, periods of quiet followed by periods of outbursts. Uh, and there's a lot 
there's a lot of paranoia. I think there are different factions. I mean, there are clearly people who I think have a more or less realistic view of the 21st century and what goes on in the 21st century and what relations between states can be. Those people exist in Tehran. Uh, There are people who really believe that the world is run by some giant Zionist Jewish conspiracy and uh, that their role is to prevent it. There are those who believe that the Mahdi, the hidden Imam, is going to show up, you know, in that chair uh, tomorrow. And um, well, I guess then at least Hamenei would step down. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I had an interesting conversation when I was in Tehran with a. Uh, in one of these demonstrations, I ran into this mullah who who uh, who. Uh, God, he was quite chatty. He was he was full of quite interesting insights. And then I went to see him subsequently, and I asked him, you know, well, where is the med? You know, where where is this this guy? You know, he disappeared all the, such a long time ago. He said, well, you know, it could be maybe he's in Chicago right now, but you know, he's in Chicago, but then he could be in Beirut the next minute, and then he could be somewhere else the next second, and. So, you know, there's this, I mean, I guess we would think of at least some of that as as delusional. Uh, So I think there are all kinds of, uh, I think you could, you know, go through the, you know, some kind of, yeah, you're you're looking pretty unhappy. Uh, I I, I was in Iran right before the election. Yeah. Uh, You try to about what well, this is it. I mean, this is what I tried to say about the tragedy of June 12. I really feel there was a tremendous opportunity because Musavi is not really a threatening figure, or certainly wasn't anyway. I mean, how could you have somebody with more impeccable revolutionary credentials? But he wasn't going to suddenly say the Holocaust didn't happen. He wasn't going to suddenly say, wipe Israel off the map. I mean, he he wasn't going to say one thing one day and something else the next. I I mean, Obama, I think, really made one quite serious mistake when he said in terms, you know, a couple of days after the election in terms of U.S. strategic interest, there's no real difference between. I mean, that's just not true. There is a very real difference in dealing with a man. And yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, and I thought watching these incredible scenes when I arrived, I thought you know what? Given who Musavi is, uh, you know, Hamenei, everybody, you know, they, they've decided to let this happen because, as you say, they believe they can control it. I mean, they will be, you know, Hatami was president for eight years, and, and okay, now it's going to be Musavi, it's going to be different. But, uh, and I believe, why else were there 500 journalists there? I mean, if they'd been planning, you know, this appalling, these appalling events that, that happened, 
would they would they have invited us? Or so I, you know, I can quite I see that conversation, and I I was thinking a lot that June 10, June 11, you know, and I thought, why else these debates? You know, why? But you know, Iran is such a riddle within a riddle within a riddle. Um, there are so many. You know, it goes. It goes to the brink. It steps back. Um, you know, despite all the, the, the terrible things that have happened since June 12. I mean, I still believe in a, in a in a kind of fundamental Iranian humanity. You know, I believe that Iranians are you know are civilized people, and that's why I get very angry at these Nazi analogies and things like that. I mean, I you know I don't believe. I also believe Iran is pretty chaotic. You know, I don't think Iran is capable of, you know, really organizing that kind of totalitarian society. I, 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 I just don't, I don't see that. You know, uh, so. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I had, I've had my. You know, I've had things taken away from me in Iran, and then I get them, you know, back. You know, like they they steal things, the Rishi guards, and you, you know, the notes or whatever, and then you they return them. You know, there's always this conscience. So I think because they know that Khomeini, this was supposed to be about freedom, right, Abbas? I mean, wasn't that what the revolution was? Isn't that what he said at the time? You know, and it was supposed also to be about democracy and against tyranny. So. Um, I feel there's always this twinge, you know, that, I mean, right now there's not much of a twinge, but it'll come back, you know, you'll see, I think, yeah. I don't know, I, I'd love to go back there, I'd love to, um, and I think I'm going to write a book about it all, so I'm going to agonize over this for a while longer. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask uh, you to comment about the relationship Iran has with India. I feel that that has not been touched upon in your presentation, and that India is possibly a partner that could be useful. Yeah, I don't know a lot. Yeah. I don't know a lot about the Iranian relationship uh, with India. Um, it seems to me, yes, that India could play a helpful role. One of the issues with the emergent powers like India and China, I think, is you don't quite know yet what they stand for, what they're ready to do on the world stage in terms of stepping up. I mean, I think, I think the Iranian relationship with Turkey is also potentially interesting in terms of you know, countries that could be go-betweens in some way in getting out of this box uh, that we're in. And uh, I think India could help. I, mean, I think India, you know, clearly has, has continued to trade pretty actively um, with Iran, doesn't see Iran as a threat, um, but doesn't want Iran to go nuclear. I mean, in terms of doesn't mind Iran going to nuclear energy, obviously, but not nuclear bomb. And so it could play a role. Um, 
But the way the United States and Israel drive the agenda is 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 pretty powerful, and you and France to some degree now, Europe. Um, and I wish I thought sanctions could could do anything. I, I just don't. I think it's being driven by a kind of we've got to do something feeling, and Congress, you know, there's pressure, and so you know probably there will be something, but it'll make absolutely. No difference to anything. Yeah, you've had your hand up for a while. Yes, sir. A couple of questions actually. One about leadership of the Yeah, whether Musavi really was a leader or just happened to be there, uh, I think Zara Ranavad is a leader. I saw her speak, and she she is quite something. She is definitely a leader, but I'm not sure that Iran is ready for that. Might be a leap, a leap too far. Um, you know, I I don't see yet uh, Musavi. Uh, you know, I think in some ways Iran is like Poland now in the 1980s, uh, in that there is this massive alienation, and you feel the country is ripe for change. But when or if it will actually happen is hard, very hard to tell. But I don't see Mussavi as a Lech Wałęsa, or you know, let alone a Mandela, or um, he, you know, he hasn't. He's like much. He's opaque to me. I don't know if you find him opaque. I find him opaque. I don't, but I don't see an alternative at this point um, either. Uh, so I think that's that's a, a very difficult um, issue going forward. Um, then you asked me about President Obama and what whether he could. Yes. Um, well, if the American president cannot stop Israel going to war, then, I mean, that's, I think clearly he can have a lot of influence. And Joe Biden is right now in Israel. And I think part of his message is to Israel to hold back. He was greeted in Israel by the announcement that 1,600 news home settlements are going to be built in the West Bank. So that, you know, shows you, I mean, President Obama said categorically in Cairo that the settlements must stop. Uh, going back 20 years, the United States has been saying the settlements must stop. They don't stop, and there's space for a Palestinian state retreats the whole time, and this obviously just radicalizes things in the Middle East and doesn't help Iran and the United States get closer. I'm very clear that the Obama administration does not want war with Iran. 
That's not what Obama wants. The United States has enough on its plate. And I think he will make every effort to ensure that Israel does not attack Iran. That doesn't mean it might not happen. It could. But I, I would put the chances in the Obama administration during the first term. We don't know if there'll be a second term, but I, w I wouldn't put it higher than 15% of chances, 10 to 15%. Um, and lastly, you asked me, I'm sorry, my mind's a bit tired. What? What the diaspora do for it? Oh, the diaspora. Well, let me turn the question around. What do you think you can do? Well, we have tried to um, make sure that the competition is yeah. I mean, well, there, you know, as I was mentioned, the technology, the lifting of this fan was a good thing. Hopefully some of this anti-filtration technology will get into Iran, make it more difficult for the government to clamp down in that way. You know, I think things, there has to be an alchemy. You know, on June, you know, in June in Iran, there was an alchemy, something nobody had expected. I think I'm right in saying that. Nobody foresaw this, and it happened. I mean, nobody foresaw, even three months before, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, nobody. Um, and how that alchemy occurs uh, is, is very hard to say. Um, you know, I think it is, as you said, it's very important to keep communication open, to keep channels open. Um, and I don't, I don't rule out some event in Iran. I, I just don't know what that event will be, what form it would take. I think, I think the situation is volatile. I, I, you know, I don't think it has, for all the appearances of, you know, relative. You know, obviously the 31st anniversary went off without a big demonstration, but I really, I really feel that um, it is still quite, quite volatile. Mr. Coyne, an extension of Nazi's question, yeah. how do you inspire students in Iran, especially those 65%, 60% under 35? It's really the message, how do we help those students to be more hopeful? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, you know, I actually would, rather than sanctions, I would actually favor greater openness. You know, I would favor throwing open visas for Iranians, um, Trading, you know, if you trade more openly, you give more competition to the Revolutionary Guards. You know, I, you know, let Boeing. You know, why shouldn't Boeing? So why, why do we have to have these Iranian planes falling out the sky? You know, there have been three have gone down or four since June 12. So, um, you know, I, I, my view is that openness helps, and isolation comforts the most paranoid and violent elements in Iran. So. That's the direction I would go in. But 
you know, the forces against that are very strong. And and right now, it's difficult for the president to make gestures toward Iran because, you know, of what's going on, you know, and, and he will be eaten alive. Uh, he'll be eaten alive in Congress if, if he makes gestures toward a country where these things are happening. So we're back in that labyrinth. Um, yeah. Yes, sir. And then you. Yeah. I have a question about the, uh, the Israel specifically. You mentioned about the counterintuitive uh, uh, sort of thing that uh, an attack to Iran is answer to prayer of Ahmadinejad and the suppressing regime. How much the Ahmadinejad in power is an answer to prayer of the more militaristic? Uh, part of the Israeli government, the Netanyahu, and whether that their policy plays any role in, 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 and I don't mean right. conspiracy theory, right. perspective. I mean it in, in sort of. Well, it certainly, uh, you know, it certainly makes it very easy to portray Iran in the worst possible light, and. <coughs> portray Iran as an imminent existential threat, although we all know that Israel is by far the most powerful nation in the Middle East, and um, it has a large uh, number of nuclear warheads. It has second strike capacity. Um, I think Israel is secure enough to conduct itself with firmness but restraint in trying to resolve this without a disaster. I mean Israel has never been at war with Persia or the Persians. It's been at war with the Arabs. It is at war with Arabs. Does it really want to add that to the mix? But I do think, yeah, that having Ahmadinejad there just makes it makes it that much easier to uh, portray Iran, of course, in the, in the worst light. And that's, that's just bad for anybody who wants you know, progress to be made. Uh, yeah. yeah, in the blue. Yeah. If you go back 20, 30 years, you'll see the leadership by Lewis in Chile, Argentina, and Australia. And from the distance, it looks like the population is very religious in those countries. Population is very what? Religious in those countries. Not really. Um, no. Uh, I don't think you can compare the faith of. I never thought of, of, of Argentina or Chile as, as places of religious fervor. Uh, I thought of them as Catholic countries, but I didn't perceive anything that resembles uh, what you see um, in terms of uh, some of the really fervid religiosity in, in Iran. And I think, you know, those countries are part of the Western Hemisphere, and Iran is is 
is rooted in the Middle East. Indeed, it's, it's a pivotal power in the Middle East. So Iran is part of a whole constellation of problems and issues that are the Middle East today, which is the epicenter of all that's most unstable and most dangerous uh, in the world. And it comes from a variety of factors, I think. It comes very centrally from the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It comes from the failure of Arab societies to modernize. It comes from the way Arab societies have used the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to perpetuate authoritarian systems. Uh, It comes from, perhaps, of the great monotheistic religions in the world, Islam is the youngest. It's at the equivalent of where Christianity was in the 14th and 15th centuries, and we know what was going on with Christianity at that time. I mean, Islam is in effervescence in a way that neither Judaism nor Christianity, whether Catholic or Protestant, is. So all of that is going on, and that is what Iran is part of, and solving Iran is part of trying to solve and make headway with all that. And none of that really was the case um, in Brazil or Argentina. You know, that said, um, we know that countries can transition from autocratic systems to more open systems. We've seen it in Europe, uh, where it wasn't so long ago Spain and Portugal were authoritarian societies. We've seen it uh, in Asia. Look at South Korea. Uh, look at Taiwan. Um, it can happen and one characteristic of such societies is you don't know the people who are going to play pivotal roles in that process until the lid comes off and a Felipe Gonzalez emerges or um, Madame Bachelet in Chile you know. so I, I really you know, I don't think it's impossible and I th- as I said I think Iran in many ways is ready I think I'm going to I have to stop there before I collapse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.